Uh, my name is Alan, and uh, Alan Pittman, and I have the pleasure of serving as the senior pastor here as well as one of the elders, and we are absolutely thrilled that you're here to worship with us this morning. Whether you're in the building or you're worshiping online, if you have not yet come to worship in the building, we'd love for you to come and worship with us on some Sunday morning uh, and be a part of this church body. Um, I didn't have this in my notes because I didn't know what all songs we were going to sing because I didn't have my um, app open to read it, but as we sang uh, Echo just a moment ago, I just couldn't, I couldn't sing the last. And, and sometimes when I look at people, I'm like, why are they not singing? Well, maybe you're worshiping more by not singing in that moment, and that was me. And what I mean by that is, I don't remember the exact words, all right? I, I don't remember them exactly, but basically when it described standing in the presence of God, how incredible that is. And then I just remembered Thursday afternoon when I showed up at the Hesselt house about 10 minutes after Mark crossed from this earthly world into all eternity and was standing in the presence of God. And guys, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then we grieve the loss of a loved one, but when that loved one knows Jesus, we have all the confidence in the world that they are with God and you one day will be able to be in the very presence of God as well, singing with all the angels for all eternity, God's holiness, God's perfection, God's goodness, and we will be in awe of who he is. I was talking to the family this week and I said, we can look at what John says in Revelation. It talks about walking the streets of gold. Guys, I don't know whether there's literal gold on the ground or not. Please hear the rest of what I'm saying. Is it gold or something much better than gold? And that John gave us a picture, but how in the world do you describe in earthly words, in English, what it looks like to be in the presence of God, and yet Revelation records that, and as fabulous and amazing as the book of Revelation is, as it talks about being in the presence of God, the reality will be so much more than that. And guys, I want us as individuals to experience the goodness of God in our lives so that we can know him in a salvation kind of way, placing our faith, our trust in Jesus and him alone for our salvation so that we can be made right with God so that we not only will experience his presence in heaven, but we can experience his presence in the here and now. And all too often, we walk into church and we think, I'm good, I'm an American, I'm a Texan, I live in the South, I live in the Bible Belt, I go to church, I go more than just Christmas and Easter, my grandpappy was a pastor, I have the VBS certificates, I learned all the memory verses, I've got it together, I sometimes put money in the plate, and I serve in the church, and I'm a good person, I've killed no one, therefore I'm good with God, and yet we have totally missed out on what Scripture teaches, and that is, we cannot work for our salvations, there's nothing about us that gets our salvation. There's nothing about Mark Heslip that brought his salvation. Rather, his salvation brought who he was as a man. So I'm asking you this morning, would you trust in Jesus as your Savior? Would you not just make him your homeboy? Would you not just make him the big guy in the sky? Would you not just make him your, your Santa Claus to grant you your wishes? All of those things are falsities. I don't know if that's a word or not, but the reality is God wants you to know him for who he is and he is holy and because of your sin you can't know him except for what christ has done on your behalf all right that was free that was pre-sermon don't start your clock yet let's go hopefully when you came in this morning 
you picked up a worship guide. And on the back side, there's all kinds of places for you to take notes. Because uh, this week, I was off on Monday and Tuesday with uh, my daughter and her fiancé in town. And then the rest of the week's been a little busy. And so I did not get my notes. Excuse me. My notes turned in. They'll be on the screen. Um, and I'll ask you a few questions. You may want to jot those down. Uh, but there'll be a place for you to take notes if you choose to do that as we go through the sermon this morning. We are wrapping up our series in the next few weeks in the book of Acts. So if you've got a Bible with you, would you go ahead and grab that uh, and turn with me to Acts? It's Matt in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to grab one of our Bibles. It should be in a chair, underneath a chair, somewhere around you. And uh, you can feel free to use those Bibles um, as we meet this morning. And, um, and then if you don't have a Bible, you can feel free to take that home with you and keep that. That'll be our gift to you. Um, I know that if you're in the front row, it may be hard to grab one because it's kind of on the back. So you may want to reach back to your neighbor and ask them if they'd mind grabbing one and handing it to you. Because I think they're in front of you if you reach out in front of you. All right. The Bible has one storyline throughout it. All of Scripture has one storyline, and I'm going to simplify it by saying this. The storyline of Scripture is God's glory, man's sin, and our need for salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Like, that's a spoiler alert. That's what the Scripture teaches. Now, when I say spoiler alert, that doesn't mean, okay, let's close it and not read it. Like, we need to dive into it, study it, understand it. But through Genesis to Revelation, that is the consistent theme throughout it. And because of that, we will see themes repeated time and time again with different stories, different occurrences, different aspects of it. And similarly, similarly, I can't say that word, in a similar fashion, we see a repetitive theme in the story of Paul. So over the last few weeks in the book of Acts, we've seen some repetitive themes coming up over and over again, and today is no different. So that's why I've titled the message such that I did, and that is the song that never ends. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing that song for you. But this, in some ways, is the song that never ends because the story that we see in Paul is repeated. This is like same song, 73rd verse. Like it's over and over again. Plus today we will see the repeat of one of my favorite plot lines of Scripture that I mentioned to you two weeks ago, and that is an attempt to have an ambush, and in this scenario, that attempt will again fail. Let me bring us up to speed with where we were last week. Last week, Paul, missionary and apostle of Jesus Christ, was under arrest. He was in the custody of the Roman officials specifically the governor of Judea who was put in place by the 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 uh, put in place by Caesar and his name is Felix the governor is side note there's two governors one is Felix and one is Festus I am almost guaranteed to say the wrong name at some point today because Felix and Festus came together and they anyway so the governor that was in place last week was Felix he heard Paul's case but he delayed making a ruling. I want us to look at the last verse of chapter 24 just to remind us where we were so that when we start in 25, it makes more sense. In Acts 24, 27, it says, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So that's kind of where we are. Paul is in limbo. He's in prison Two years have passed, and he is still there, and now Felix is no longer the governor, 
and Festus has been put into place by Nero. So two years have passed, Paul's in jail, Nero's removed Felix, Festus is now in charge, and the year is somewhere in the year of 59 or maybe 60, 80, 59, or 60. Now let's read the actual text, chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, in other words, three days after he took his reign or his responsibility, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Caesarea would be the uh, government official area. He went to Jerusalem. And the chief priests and the principal men, or the leading men of the Jews, laid out their case against Paul, and they urged Festus, saying, or asking as a favor against Paul, that he would summon Paul to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill Paul on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man with Paul, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than ten, eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and he ordered Paul to be brought when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the Jew, law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. So the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do, do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed? To Caesar you shall go. I want us to look at a map to kind of see our bearings of where we are. You're going to see on the map two cities, Jerusalem and Caesarea, and you'll look down towards the south, and there's Jerusalem near the Dead Sea. It's obviously in modern-day Israel, and then Caesarea would be in modern-day Israel as well, and it's up on the coast, and you can see the distance there, and while we don't have a chart that shows you how far, let me explain it. It's about 65 miles. So you have about 65 miles from the religious center of activity for the province of Judea, and that would be Jerusalem, up to, or they say down to, because Jerusalem is higher elevation, so down to uh, Caesarea, and Caesarea would be on the coast, and because it's on the coast, it's quicker access to Rome, and that would be where the, the, um, the, the government structure would be. And so when Festus is put into power, he, three days later, says, it would be smart of me to go down to Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem, and he goes 65 miles, he goes to Jerusalem, and he spends some time there so that he can get to know the Jewish religious leaders. It says that once he gets there, he's approached by these uh, chief priests and the principal men. And what that's probably referring to is the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council, the 70 leaders of the nation of Israel, uh, religiously speaking, or at least like the select uh, leadership of them. Either way, we have some leadership and authority that comes to Festus, and they see now an opportunity to do something they've been chomping at the bits to do for two years. Felix has left the case of Paul alone for two years. They have 
definitely not forgotten about it. And they're like, now we have a chance, and we're going to introduce ourselves to Festus, and we're going to get him to take up the case again so that we can be rid of this dude, Paul, once and for all. So they asked Festus, do us a favor. We want you to bring Paul down to or up to Jerusalem so that his case can be heard there. More than likely, Festus has no clue of what their ulterior motive is, but the ulterior motive is that on the way down to or up to Jerusalem, I keep saying the wrong thing, on the way to Jerusalem, they're going to ambush them. They're going to take Paul out and kill him because they're not trusting the Roman legal system. They're going to take matters in their own hands. They've become vigilantes. And this is very much like what had taken place previously. About a week later, after Festus says, no, I'm not going to do it, you can come to Caesarea with me and I'll hear the case there because that's where Paul is. About a week later, they go on up there. The very next day, he's ready to hear the case. We see the Jewish leaders <coughs> excuse me, sh show up. I've had a lingering cough for a while and it decided to show up. Um, the Jewish leaders surround Paul and they bring serious charges against Paul. But again, they can do nothing to prove it because these charges are just not true. Paul stands up and brings his defense. It's not uh, recorded at great length, probably said more than he did, but the summary of what Paul said is, I haven't offended anything or anyone. I've not offended the law of the Jews, I've not offended the temple, and I've not offended Caesar or the Roman Empire. In other words, Paul is blameless. He's not guilty. He didn't sin. He has a clear conscience, as we've talked about the last few weeks, before God and man. It seems like the charges that they've brought against Paul are the same ones they've always brought against him. The religious stuff, and this time they've tacked on one more. And that one that they've added on is to get the Roman officials' attention, and they're claiming that Paul is treasonous in his action. You may be wondering, well, how is Paul treasonous in his action? The answer is he hasn't been. But there was a similar charge brought against him, if we'll put on the screen, Acts chapter 17, verse 7. In Acts chapter 17, verse 7, we see that they are in Thessalonica, and a similar charge is brought against Paul there. And here's what it says. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And so what they're claiming is, because Paul is preaching that Jesus is the king, they're claiming that they're, he's speaking against the Caesar, which he's not. He's just proclaiming the truth that Jesus is the king, not politically speaking, but factually speaking that Jesus is the king. So Festus wants to do a, a favor to the Jews, and so he offers to settle the case in Jerusalem. Paul boldly declares absolutely not. We're not going to Jerusalem. The case should be heard here in the Roman court. We're in the right place. In fact, I appeal my case to Caesar. This appealing of a case is different than what we think about appealing a case. Oftentimes, appealing a case would be, I have been found guilty of something. I want to appeal the verdict. No verdict has been made. He's just saying, I need a change of venue. I need to go to Rome and hear my case there. So that's the story that we have here. The question is, how does that apply to us? What do we see in Paul, and what do we see in us? And since you asked me that question, let's look at uh, the board. I started to say my notes, but there's no notes on your sheet. Here it is. Enemies of Christ are unrelenting. The enemies of Christ are unrelenting. Y'all are confusing me. I keep looking back here thinking that there's nothing on the board up there, because I've got a cheat sheet back here, and it's not up there. Sorry. All right. So uh, mental note technology team, I want to see if we can change that for next week. All right, here we go. Um, enemies of Christ are unrelenting. We've had two years of Paul in prison. 
and it hasn't cooled the opponents of Paul off at all. They still hate him. We're not going to take the time to look back. You can go to our website and listen to previous sermons. But if you look back at chapter 23, you will see a similar. There we go. Thank you, guys. You'll see back in chapter 23 that a similar plot has been put against Paul. When Paul was in custody, they wanted to ambush Paul and kill him when 40 men make a vow to kill him. And that vow is not fulfilled as Paul is still alive today. Or not today, but when this was written. And so, so, well, he is alive in heaven. Anyway, sorry, my mind is going all over the place this morning, as you can tell. And in that occasion, back in 23, the ones who wanted to have Paul killed went to the Sanhedrin and said, could you help us out here? This time, though, it's gotten so much worse that now it's not someone inquiring of the Sanhedrin. It's actually the Sanhedrin themselves that are planning the plot this time. The enemy is attacking Paul unrelentingly. Things have just gotten worse in their attitude towards Paul. Their plan was absolutely to destroy Paul and the followers of the way of Jesus Christ, much in how Paul had done before he became a follower of Jesus. They were out to attack and kill and destroy the church. That was their plan. They wanted to do this in desperation. They were unrelenting in their attack. They were obsessed with silencing and killing Paul. They went into attack mode. Look at Acts chapter 25, verse 7. In Acts chapter 25, verse 7, we see that the Jew, Jewish leaders show up and they are seeking to intimidate Paul. It says in verse 7, they brought many serious charges against him. But before that, it says they came down from Jerusalem and they stood around him. And what you have here in the original language is they're encircling him. They're around him. They're like in his face. Have you ever had somebody like leaning over your shoulder and you don't really like that very much? All these leaders have literally circled around Paul, I believe, to try to intimidate him. And so they are serious about attacking Paul at every opportunity they can. They brought many and serious charges, albeit false charges. They were in attack mode. Two years did not cool their jets at all. Instead, it just elevated their anger and hatred towards Paul and the church. This passage shows us that absolutely nothing and no one would get in their way to carry out their plans. They were determined that Paul would be killed. But the good news is there was someone that could stop their plans, and he did, and that's God himself. This passage and so many others show us that Paul faced unrelenting hostility. You're like, okay, you told us everything we already knew. I tell you all that to say this. You are not Paul, neither am I. We shouldn't compare ourselves to him. We shouldn't make him the hero of the story because he's not. Jesus is the hero. But as we look at Paul's story, just as Paul faced unrelenting attacks, and just as Jesus said it would happen to him, he also said it will happen to us. And you and I likewise will and do face unrelenting attacks all of the time. The truth of the matter is that we will face it as well. Granted, ours may not look like his. By a show of hands, anyone ever face an attempted ambush twice on your life because you follow Jesus? 
Okay, probably not. Now, if we were in another country or another part of the world, perhaps that could be the case. But here in the United States, probably none of us have faced exactly the attacks that Paul does. But the reality is that all of us do face attacks from the enemy. If you don't believe me, let's look at the words of Peter. Peter says in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, here's what Peter says. He encourages, encourages us to be sober-minded, to be watchful, to understand that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That is what happens when we're following Jesus. Satan is on the attack, he's on the offensive, he's unrelenting in his attack, and he will seek to devour you if you're a follower of Jesus. Let me list a few of the ways that you and I, in the past, or currently, or in the future, may face attacks from Satan that are unrelenting. For some of us, people may attack us. They make fun of us. They lie about us. They gossip about us. They seek to bring you down. They seek to destroy you. Perhaps you have been, and sadly, I know for me, that's the case, not here at Living Hope, but I've been a part of a church where people in the church family are seeking to devour each other and run each other down and into the ground and destroy each other. And I'll tell it like I've told before, I literally had a deacon. There's about six a feet taller than me, six inches taller than me, show up at my doorstep right before my oldest daughter, Alana, was born. He knocked on the door at my house and said, Alan, your family's all in Texas. Don't you think it's time for you to move back down there so that your child can be born there? Was not intended to be a positive thing. It was a get on out of town. We don't want you here. We have experienced attacks from people, and perhaps you have as well, and that is no fun at all. Here's another way that we can face unrelenting attacks from Satan, and that is sin. There's sin in your life that tempts you, that, that, that comes your way, that you're tempted to fall into the temptation of, you're tempted to fall into the reality of sin, and that sin could be blatant, obvious, wicked sin, or it could be subtle sin where I'm tempted to show greed or anger or disapproval or, or envy or, or, or gossip or whatever the case may be. All of these attacks of sin and temptation coming our way is a design to distract us from following Jesus. Another attack that may come our way is that you and I will, for a fact, experience the negative effects of the fall. In, in our class, in equipment class this morning, we were looking at Christian beliefs and we studied the doctrine of sin. And the reality is that because of the sin of Adam and Eve, you and I are prone to sin and all of the world is messed up and the world is fallen and broken. And because of the effects of sin, disaster sometimes happens. And death, physical death, entered into the equation because of the brokenness of the world. And so you and I will experience the effects of the fall through sickness, disease, natural disaster, death. All of these things will attack us, and these things are intended to distract us from following Jesus. These attacks will hit you, your family, your church, and attempt to derail the plans of God. So the truth of the matter is, just as Paul faced uh, unrelenting attacks from the enemies of Christ, you and I likewise experience unrelenting attacks in our life. The question is, what do we do when those come? And so I've got a couple of questions that will be on the screen to sum up this point. By the way, I've only got two points, 
and two questions on each of those points. And here, is the, here are the two questions that I have for you. In what ways, let's go to the other questions. In what ways are you currently under an, a, a relenting attack? In what ways are you currently under a relenting attack? I can't, I can't speak this morning. The second question is this. How do these unrelenting attacks affect your relationship with God? I want you to jot down some thoughts. Begin to think through, where am I experiencing attacks right now? Everything that Satan can do, he's going to throw our way to distract us from following Jesus. And what attacks are you currently facing? And some of those attacks could be self-induced. Some of those attacks could be because of someone else in your life. And some of those attacks could simply be, and I'm not trying to be um, uh, light about it, but simply be just because the world is a fallen, broken place. And in, in, in those scenarios, what steps of actions is God calling you to take? Could be repentance. Could be uh, going to talk to someone. It could be, um, it could be just praying that you can trust God in the midst of it all. But the reality is all of us are facing and will face unrelenting attacks. Here's some possible ways on that second question. How do these affect your relationship with God? It could cause some of us to lose our joy in our relationship with Christ. It could cause us to feel hopeless. It could cause us to be angry at God. It could cause us to choose to fall into sin. It could actually have a positive effect, and that is could cause us to be drawn closer to Christ than ever before. When I was a pastor at the same church that I mentioned earlier, there was another deacon in his family in our church, the Fowl family. They were an incredible family. Um, their daughter, Emily, um, was tragically killed at, uh, in her senior year in a car wreck after a home football game, and our community and our youth group was devastated. She was on her way that evening to the church building because we were doing what we called a fifth quarter, which was this after the football party kind of thing, and people began to trickle in, I heard there was a wreck, and then I heard who it was, and then I went down there, and then, man, the night went from there, and Emily passed away that evening. As I watched her mom and her dad, as I watched Larry and Glenna, mom and dad, husband and wife, they had two choices when that happened. They could become angry and bitter at God. They could become angry and bitter at each other that somehow the other caused this to happen, which would be far from the truth, or they could allow God to draw ever close to them, and their marriage and their walk with Christ could grow stronger, and I watched them as they grew stronger instead of divided apart. I don't know what's attacking you in your life, but you can choose through the power of the Holy Spirit within you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to trust God in the middle of it all. My challenge to you is to respond to those attacks in the biblical fashion, and one of those ways is continue to trust God. May we grow in our faith through what we're facing. May we do that by leaning into the relationship that we have with God and with his church. So the truth of the matter is unrelenting attacks on God's people is a recurring theme throughout Scripture and throughout our lives, but praise God, there's another recurring theme, and here it is. The recurring theme is that God's providential care is unstoppable. So while the attacks on us are unrelenting, God's providential care for us is unstoppable. 
There's a difference between being unrelenting and being unstoppable. The attacks may feel overwhelming, and they are. But the truth of the matter is, Christ is with us. God loves us. He's providing for us, and His provision will not stop. If you were to go back to Acts chapter 23, you would see that God promised Paul in a vision, Jesus appeared to him when he was in jail, and Jesus said, you will go to Rome, and you will testify about me in Rome, and because God said that, it would happen. Because he planned it, it would take place, and nothing would stop that plan. Yet, over and over and over again, even though Jesus had promised it, and even though it would come true over and over again, and we're not done with this story, next few weeks he'll continue to be attacked. The reality is that Paul was attacked over and over again. But, as he's attacked over and over again, God comes through and provides for him over and over and over again. Guys, you may be under attack, and it may feel unrelenting, but there is a God who loves you and provides for you, and what he provides is unstoppable. Trust in God as you're facing whatever difficulties in life. The provision that God gave to Paul in this particular story in Acts chapter 25 begins when Festus refused to bring Paul to Jerusalem. Remember the men came to him and said, Paul, I mean, uh, Festus, bring Paul here to Jerusalem and have his case heard here, and they were going to have him killed on the way there. But Festus instead invited the men to Caesarea, and God used Festus's desire to hear more of Paul's story, and that's all that it was, in order to protect Paul so that Paul could survive for another court hearing. Apparently, Festus saw through the lies of Paul's attackers, which is another way that God providentially provided for him. Festus saw that Paul's attackers were lying, and he knew the charges weren't valid, and therefore, he didn't take horrible action against Paul. Another way that we see Paul, uh, God's providential protection for Paul is that Paul was trusting God's care for him, and so did you notice that Paul boldly spoke back to Festus. Festus says, I'm going to do this, and Paul goes, no, actually, you're not going to. Like, Festus is saying what he's going to do as the ultimate ruler of that province, and Paul, knowing that God would take care of him, spoke up boldly and faced no repercussions. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 25, verses 10, 11, and 12, you're going to see some of that boldness from Paul. Whenever Paul stands up and is talking to Festus, and Festus is giving him an option, do you want to go down, go up to Jerusalem, or, or do you want to stay here? Paul says in verse 10, he says boldly, he said, I'm going to stay here, and he says at the end of verse 10, the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. He, says, he looks at Festus, he goes, Festus, you haven't said it, but you know for a fact I'm not guilty. That is boldness and confidence, right? 
And then verse 11, he says, no one's going to give me over to the Jews. You're not going to do it. No one else is. I'm not going to Jerusalem. Then verse 11, he says, I appeal to Caesar. And Festus could have reprimanded Paul all along, but instead he granted that appeal. In verse 12, it says, to Caesar you shall go. In other words, Paul's ticket to Rome was successfully punched and nothing would stop it. We see time and time and time again that God protected and provided for Paul because he had a purpose for Paul to go to Rome to preach the gospel there and nothing would stop God's plan and purpose. Guys, I cannot stand here and tell you what God's specific plan is for your life. I can speak to general statements about that, but whatever God's plan is for you, no matter the attacks, no matter how unrelenting it is, nothing will stop God's plan for you. And so Paul is experiencing that in his encounters here. All along, God's plan for Paul has been aided by Roman officials and Roman legal system, and unknowingly they are carrying out God's plan to protect Paul. A little heads up, as we finish the rest of the book of Acts, it has 28 chapters, there are going to be attacks that remain unrelenting. And at the same time, there's going to be God's provision that never stops. But here's some good news. Or, and here's some other good news, I should say. In this scenario, this is the last time that the Jewish leaders attack Paul. From here on out, we will not see the Jewish leaders attack him at all because God's plans will not be thwarted. While Satan's attacks in your life are unrelenting, the reality is that God's providential care for you is even more unstoppable. I do want to give you a word of caution here, though. Here's the word of caution. The truth that God's providential care for you is unstoppable, even when Satan's attacks are unrelenting, the word of caution is this truth is a truth, but it does not guarantee a sitcom ending for you. Now, the younger group may not know what a sitcom is, but back in my day, uh, we watched these 30-minute shows, and they had commercials and all of this, so it really was probably about 20 minutes, maybe 22 minutes of content, and it would start with this deep, hard, difficult problem that faces the family, and then 20 minutes later, it's resolved, a nice, neat bow is tied on the thing, and the problem is entirely done away with. How amazing would it be if you could solve the world's problems in 20 minutes? And if it was a sitcom in a true sense of the word, unless there was a cliffhanger and they decided to do it to, for two shows, it always ended positively for the main characters. Your life and my life, if we're followers of Jesus, are still not sitcoms. God still provides for us, but things may not go the way that we want them to go. Saying that God is unstoppable, while also saying that things don't always go our way, is not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction to say that God's plan is unstoppable, and yet we may not see things go our exact way. I can't count on my two hands and my two feet. I can count, but what I'm about to say... I, can't, I cannot count the number of times 
in conversations, in phone calls, in texts that I had with Mark over these last three years where Mark was praying for healing for his physical body. That man had a faith and confidence that God is able to bring healing even to a body riddled by ALS. And even in the midst of that, he knew that God may not choose to answer that prayer, but that God would bring an ultimate healing to his body. And I say that to mean this. If I say attacks on our life are unrelenting and God's purposes are unstoppable or his providential care for us is unstoppable, we can mistakenly think that every time I pray for something that God must make it happen the way that I am asking for or that proves he's not caring for me and that is a incorrect statement. If you want to ask me why is it that God sometimes answers prayers and sometimes God he doesn't answer those prayers, I could throw something out at you but I can't give you a firm pat answer and oh it's just easy i mean it's just you know a plus b equals c let me tell you how simple it is because it's not that simple but i do know this that whether god answers the prayer that is seemingly not a greedy selfish prayer and yet he doesn't answer it the way i asked for him to answer it does not negate the fact that he is providentially providing for us think about paul and his life there's a place in his life where it's talking about he's got this thorn in the flesh and he doesn't describe what the thorn is, but he just says, I prayed for God to remove that thorn. In fact, I prayed for three times to be, for it to be removed. God did not remove it, yet he said, my grace is sufficient for you. So whatever attacks you are facing, whether God answers it the way you want him to or not, his care for you is unstoppable and his grace for you is unrelenting. It is ongoing forever. Trust him. His grace is sufficient. Sometimes we think the word sufficient is a weak word. Uh, that's sufficient. Like, how was, how was the, the movie? Like, you wouldn't use the word sufficient, but somebody said, how good is the movie? Uh, it was sufficiently done. That would make it sound like, eh, it's weak. It was, I don't know, maybe a 65 or a 70. No, the word sufficient, as it says, my grace is sufficient for you, means absolutely, certainly, without doubt, without hesitation, my grace is enough. God's provision for us is unstoppable. I want to ask you a couple questions. They were on the screen just a second ago. We'll put them on the screen again. Then I want to ask you in this section, will you trust God's care for you? Will you, care, will you trust that his care for you is unstoppable even when things in your life don't go the way you want them to? And then right alongside of that, here's another question. Are there steps that God's calling you to take? So that when you take them, you can begin to realize that God's providential care is there in the midst of attacks. And I chose the word realize on purpose, not just realize, oh, okay, yeah, I see it. But no, realize, actualize, experience. How can you experience God's provision in the midst of difficulty? What steps is God calling you to take? What I'm not calling for is works. What I am calling for is what steps of obedience or discipleship can you take in order to fully trust God in the midst of your storms. Two recurring themes in Paul's life. Two recurring themes throughout Scripture. Two recurring themes in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, 
then attacks from the enemy will be unrelenting. But the amazing good news is, regardless of how hard or easy or whatever those challenges are, the reality is that God's providential care for you is unstoppable and he is with you every step of the way. God, that is our confession. God, we need you. God, we need you because the attacks of the enemy are real. The sins that were attacked by and tempted by are real. The, the, the troubles we face uh, from others is real. And yet at the same time, God, we know that whenever we say we need you, you answer that prayer and you are faithfully, continuously, unstoppably there that your providential care for us is ongoing. So Father, I pray that you would help us to trust in that, that as we walk this life, that we would constantly be reminded of your goodness to us and trust you in that. We need you. It's in the powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Part of how God provides for us providentially is he gives us a church family. And we need each other. So this week, we have a way to serve the Heslip family. Read your email. There's three or four different ways that you can serve, and we need your help this week. You and I, we need each other as we go through our lives. So spend some time this morning. Introduce yourself to somebody you don't know. Get to know each other. Let's do this thing together, what it means to be a disciple, make disciples, be the church to the glory of God. You're dismissed. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope, like wildfire in our very souls. Holy Spirit, come invade us are your church we need your power in us build your kingdom build your kingdom here let the darkness fear show you